you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. My name is Jackie Cation, and you've chosen wisely. I'm PF, this is my tape recorder, and welcome to another edition of the History of Synth Pop. We are on episode number six. Now, I decided to divide the early 80s between the two sides of the pond, as it were, uh, the United States and the UK, of course. And now that I'm thinking about it, I know there's a couple of, um, well, we'll do a visit to Germany in a later episode. That's a whole different uh, thing. I know we started with Kraftwerk a little bit earlier, and of course there are a couple of groups from Australia turn up and things like that, so maybe we'll do like an international episode in episode eight. But episode seven is going to be uh, the mid-80s kind of on mostly in Britain, but we're in the United States now for episode six, and I was listening to uh, a rerun of American Top 40, which radio stations around the country play from time to time, and I uh, forgot a song that was kind of key to the whole electronic movement here in the United States, and first of all, let me go back on the American Top 40 thing. We have an oldie station here that, uh, we have two oldie stations in, in Cincinnati. One's really good, and one of them is okay. Nice people, but it's the same old oldies you've heard over and over again, and the other one plays uh, like a familiar track and then like a non-familiar track that may be charted way down the chart and it's really really cool but anyway uh, one of them reruns American Top 40 they run the 70s at 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday and they run the 80s at 8 o'clock at night on Sunday but you have to listen to American Top 40 if you're me on a Sunday morning because that's how I did it when I was a kid it sounds weird any other time so I'm not the first to make this observation. I think Dave Holmes made this observation on Jimmy Pardo's podcast, Never Not Funny, that the these American Top 40s from the 70s and 80s are fantastic, especially if you uh, start listening to them right from the start, because the songs from like 40 into the teens, you hear stuff you just don't hear anymore on the radio, and it's some really, really cool stuff. And even occasionally in the upper teens and the top 10, you might hear a song and be like, why don't I hear this on the radio anymore? So anyway, not the case for this song. This song was a big, big hit. But I didn't realize that it was a hit in Britain first and didn't become a hit in the United States until uh, January of 1970. Well, actually, spring of 1979. It was released in January of 79. Recorded in 78. It is by a group you're probably well familiar with. That's Blondie. Blondie, not particularly, I would say, a synth-pop group, but this track certainly is very synth-pop. It uses a Roland CR-78 drum machine. You got a Mini Moog in there. You got a Roland SH-5 in there. It is, it's very keyboardy, even though their overall output wasn't I guess specifically keyboardy, but became a hit in England first, not surprisingly, then was a hit here, and again, getting people used to the idea of, uh, you know, all synths in the chart, and this is a case where, um, I remember I told you before, a lot of songs that went to number one, I didn't like right when I first heard them, but this is an exception, I like this song a lot uh, right when I first heard it, and uh, glad it got the number one in the spring of 1979, this is Blondie with Heart of Glass.
there you go, Blondie, Heart of Glass, Sequencers, Drum Machines, the whole thing. Uh, it's it's a, That's a pretty Kraken synth-pop tune there. But then, of course, they went on to do, you know, reggae. They covered the, that Paragons tune, The Tide is High, and uh, they do a little bit of rap and rapture. So, you know, they, they explore but maintain a sound of their own, which was pretty cool. Uh, we go to Chicago for our next band, uh, a DJ named Alan Jorgensen. He has a he's a DJ and he forms a band that's called Ministry. He gets the attention of some record labels. He gets signed. Uh, Vince Eli, who will later or I think around the same time is drumming for the Psychedelic Furs, who are starting to get keyboardy. Uh, that's another story. Uh, he's uh, in charge of producing this album from Ministry. And I can't remember the other fellow's name in ministry. It was primarily Alan Jorgensen, though. And he later says that, you know, this album is terrible. It, we, it, it's, it's Alan Jorgensen's songs, but they were completely bastardized. And, and Eli took complete control and made him sound like, you know, garden variety synth pop of the day. Uh, which always made me and my friend wonder, my friend Tony in Pittsburgh, who was a big ministry fan of their later stuff, which we're going to hear in a couple episodes from now. Uh, they got really industrial, but my friend Tony was always like, well, why don't you just go back and re-record the songs like they should sound? You wouldn't have to pay anybody. You can re-record your own songs and not have to pay anybody. He couldn't like re-release, like, I guess if the record label owns the original ministry album, the first one called uh, With Sympathy is this debut album, uh, he can't re-release it and make money off it, only they can, but he can re-record those songs because he wrote them. So anyway, I always wonder why he didn't do that. And I've heard later interviews now where he said, well, you know, he maybe overreacted. He said it's, it's an okay album, it just isn't what he wanted it to sound like. And it, judging by what he did later on, you, you can kind of see that. But it's still really, really good. There's a lot of good songs on this. The big, big single from it is a song called Revenge. It is extremely keyboardy, and I think this is probably one of your first really all-synth big hits from an American artist. Here's Ministry with Revenge. Revenge, you can hear just a little itty-bitty pieces of ministry to come in there if you're familiar. Um, we come back to Devo for our next track. Uh, remember we mentioned Devo as being a band that was interested in electronics and synths, but was still had a lot of guitars in it. 
Devo released a couple of albums in the early 80s. I believe one of them produces the hit Whip It, which you're well familiar with. And uh, they're still using a lot of guitars, but making it more and more electronic. Uh, Beautiful World, you've probably heard in a Target commercial. That's got a good mix of guitar and keyboards. But by 1982, they released an album called Oh No, It's Devo, which they explain as the reaction they usually had when people saw them or knew they were coming or knew they were going to make an appearance somewhere. And it's all keyboards now, kids. And uh, I like this album a lot. People don't, it's got uh, Speed Racer on it. It's got explosions. It's got all kinds of good tunes, including this banger, which is all keyboardy. And I think it's still probably one of my favorite Devo songs, certainly in the top three. It's a song called That's Good. Devo, that's good, from 1982's Oh No, It's Devo. And again, very keyboardy, but they're not getting much traction. They, the, only one song bothered the charts, of course, that was Whip It. And you know, they, they still have a, a solid fan base at this point, and they can, will continue to make albums through the 80s. But uh, this is really their, probably their most electronic album, I would say. I think the one after it, I think, which was called Shout, uh, was also very electronic-y, but also didn't really do as well. Uh, at the cash register, as some of the previous albums did. And yet another band that was moving, being more keyboardy, our friends, the B-52s from Athens, GA. And they were using some kind of electronics even back of their first album. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the Rock Hall used to have on loan a uh, keyboard. It was an 8-note or 12-note keyboard thing that was just a, they used it to play bass lines, and so primitive was this thing, it just had a phono jack in the back of it, not the three-prong, what we call a cannon jack, which is which became more of the standard to eliminate noise, and they would just plug this into the board, and off they went. So they were using that, but by 1983, they bring out an album called Whammy. The big singles from this are a song from a future generation, and this track, Legal Tender, and uh, yeah, mostly all keyboards. A little bit of guitar you'll hear at the end of the song. I'm not going to probably play that much of it, but the, the very end when they're uh, wrapping up the chorus one last time, there's a little guitar lick in there, but mostly keyboards. Again, one of their best tunes. This is Legal Tender from B-52s.
B-52s from Athens, GA, from the very keyboardy uh, Whammy album. And uh, they will get, I guess they stay kind of keyboardy for the album they released in 1985. Maybe we'll discuss that at some other point. I think I discussed that when I did, uh, they appeared as an honorable mention band on PF's third favorite band. It's to Southern California we go, and a band that was trying to be very electronic, but still had, uh, they had a guitar player, a guy named Dave Diamond. It's a band called Berlin. And they kind of banged around Southern California, Orange County for a while. They released this track. We will hear the re-release of it. They recorded it. I think they re-recorded it when they got a label, uh, got signed by a label, Geffen Records. But this song did very well in its first release locally in Los Angeles on KROQ. It is very keyboardy. I don't think you'll find a guitar on this, even though they have a guitar player at this point. This is the Metro from Berlin. Berlin, very classic new wave song, very California new wave. I think if you hear the quintessential new wave California sound right there from Berlin, yeah, throwing some oingo boingo, and why wow, you've got yourself uh, quite the Los Angeles area new wave. Oh, the Go Go's too, of course. Uh, rock and Roll Hall inductees. Congratulations, girls. So anyway, Berlin, uh, they go on to be, they will go on to record a big, big song with Giorgio Moroder, oddly, and uh, it's it's uh, it's labeled as Berlin, but it's only Terry Nunn singing. John Crawford refuses to be on the record. I didn't write it. I ain't going to be on it. So anyway, Berlin, who you know from the big, big hit, which isn't really very good, even though Giorgio Moroder wrote some really good tunes for movies, uh, Never Ending Story, Electric Dreams, uh, Take My Breath Away, not one of them. Sorry, kids. So now we come to a band called Industry. They are from New Jersey. Oh, my bad. They're from Long Island. I don't know why I got the notion they were from New Jersey. Anyway, uh, they are a predominantly keyboardy band, and boy, from their the one video... Well, they did two videos for their big hit song. Uh, I only saw the second version much, much later. The uh, one that I was on MTV a lot is really just a performance video of them in a, on a soundstage with all their equipment and stuff like that, and then a couple of like uh, military people wandering around in the background and things like that. Anyway, the, the group's main uh, creative force is a guy named John Karen. If you watch Jimmy Pardo's Jimmy's Records YouTube channel, he uh, uh, put this album out as one of his favorites of 1984. Stranger to Stranger was the album. He loves the whole album. I don't have the whole album. I only have the hit single. 
but um, I should probably try to get a hold of this. I think it's probably out of print, so it's probably very hard to find. In any case, John Karen's claim to fame is after uh, industry dissolved, he went on to be in Pink Floyd, and as Jimmy points out, if you're a Pink Floyd fan and you're looking for something similar, this is not it. Uh, industry are very much, a, uh, I would say, a new wave, new romantic band. Uh, apparently they were dubbed as the American Spandau Ballet back at that time. Anyway, they have a hit with a song called State of the Nation, which is really, really good. I believe it gets to like 54-ish. I remember uh, washing my car in the driveway at my mom's house, my 1974 Pinto, and WMMS playing this. And me thinking, wow, that's kind of cool, the WMMS, more a, a rock station, uh, AOR station in the traditional sense. They were really opening up their playlist. I guess they kind of always had, but they were really opening it up in the summer of 84 and starting to play people like Tears for Fears and, of course, uh, Industry. So anyway, here you go. Uh, from New York City, Long Island specifically, this is Industry with State of the Nation. Industry, State of the Nation, what a great, great tune. Uh, I gotta find that album, man, because I don't really remember anything else about it. My buddies liked it a lot. They released an EP first, and then they released a whole album, which included the five songs from the EP, which pissed off my friend Tony. He was he bought the EP, and he's like, I gotta go buy the whole album and get the other five songs? That's ridiculous. But he did. We stay in New York City for two guys who had been knocking about uh, town for a couple of years. Uh, we're in 1984. Uh, a guy named Ned Lieben and Robert Rosen. Ned Lieben works in a recording studio, uh, one he helped build when he was at the age of 14. Robert Rosen, uh, wait, I'm getting confused now. Yeah, Robert Rosen is a Broadway singer and performer at this point. Uh, he meets Ned at a party, I believe is the lore. And uh, I think their girlfriends introduce them because I think, oh, you guys have a lot in common. They wind up going to clubs together, listening to music, and getting interested in kind of the dance music scene. They get interested in a little bit of synth pop as well. They form a duo called Eben Ozen, and they have two, I would say, hits with the quotation finger mark things. Uh, one is a big MTV hit, A-E-I-O-U and Sometimes Why, which we're going to listen to in a second. The other is a song called Bag Lady. They use, uh, they're one of the first groups to, and we'll discuss this in episode 7, some of the British groups. They're the first group, I believe, to record a song using the Fairlight CMI. But at the very same time, OMD have bought one of these things. They are insanely expensive. I believe they're probably only able to afford it because uh, Robert, no, I'm sorry, Ned Lieben Studio probably owns one because they're doing professional work and recording for other artists. So that's how they're able to use the Fairlight. And uh, although the whole album isn't really very keyboardy because they experiment with a lot of different 
sounds that are popular at the time in New York. There's a little bit of kind of early rap to it. Uh, there's a really heavy guitar part in Bag Lady, but Ebenosen is very synth poppy. It's a little spoken word. Um, I'm not a fan of what I call talking songs, but there, I have a handful of songs that are exceptions. This certainly is one of them. This is from 1984 from the album Feeling Cavalier. A-E-I-O-U and Sometimes Why from Ebenosen. Ebenosen, A-E-I-O-U, and sometimes Y. Uh, what a great track. There's a 12-inch version of that as well that's really good. You probably remember the video. He's uh, he's knocking around New York City trying to get the attention of this girl. Excuse my clicking while I bring up the song of the week here, by the way. Uh, yeah, so Ebenosen, they only made the one album. Uh, we lost Ned Lieben in the 1990s at a young age. I had a heart attack making breakfast for his kids. Uh, rock and peace, Ned Lieben. Robert Rosen changed his name officially to Robert Ozen, O-Z-N, to match Eben Ozen. Uh, he, he formed another dance band kind of thing. He's now out in Los Angeles. He became a script consultant, and I think he scores movies occasionally. I, I seem to have some recollection of that. So there you go. That is the American uh, version of History of Synth Pop. That's the early 80s. In the next episode, we will go back over to Britain and kind of pick up where we left off there with folks like Thompson Twins or Custom Maneuvers. Depeche Mode, discover a new type of keyboard that becomes very exciting. OMD, of course, like I said, by the Fairlight, they're doing different... So people are doing different things with different equipment, and we'll explore that next week. We have arrived now at the song of the week, and did I put it in my playlist here for Spring 21? I did. Bia Badoobie, you might know, uh, she had that song remixed by the Canadian fella, the, the coffee song. And uh, anyway, she has a new track out. She's friendly with the 1975. This track was either written or co-written by Maddie Healy of the 1975. The song is called Last Day on Earth. And, uh, well, you can really hear it. It's very much sounding like this gal singing a 1975 song. It doesn't sound very coffee-ish. It's much more, I guess where the coffee song was more kind of acoustic-y, 
girl singy singer songwriter thingy. This is more of a proper pop hit, and uh, this is gonna be our song of the week. A very appropriate as the 1975 are, are very keyboardy themselves in their in their own way, and we'll, I'm sure we'll hear them in a much much later episode when we get up into the uh, 21st century here. But in the meantime. Here's our song of the week on PS Tape Recorder. Be a the doobie, last day on earth. So long and thanks for listening. Yeah.